I am a believer in, in uh, myopic management. I, I, we've been doing it in our practice for a long time. Probably the first time I ever did a, a lecture on myopia management was 2014. Nice. So I, I, um, I, I wrote about it. And what's crazy is that, um, you know, the evidence continues to build, right? It continues yeah. to grow. Um, but what I, um, what I, what I wonder is what I always think about is if you see that big grid in your mind, the big grid of, you know, 128 times more likely to have yeah, this right. condition, right? Yeah. The, the, um, initially, and, and it's been hard to sift through the, the data, but, um, what's the original risk? So like, if you're an emetrope on those things, do you, do you have that information right off the top of your head? Like if I asked you, like, what's the, like, if you're an emetrope or let's say a two doctor myope, what's the risk of myopic maculopathy? Like the, the percentage of those patients that will have myopic maculopathy yeah. compared to the yeah, minus yeah, yeah. eight. What's the um, likelihood, right? Yeah. 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 So I'll first start with the minus six and higher because yeah. that's a one in four chance of getting yeah. myopic maculopathy. Now back to your minus twos and threes or even an emetrope. I agree. That's going to be somewhere in the one to 5% range. Okay. So somebody on ODs on Facebook said this too, like, why would I reduce it by 40% if it's just going from 1% down to 0.6%, right? right? right. Um, but we know that there's no safe level of myopia. Like odds ratios are tricky. They're hard to like put mm. into real life. And so I think, yeah, uh, to answer your question, it's somewhere in that 1% to 5% for the lower myopes and then 25% or more for the higher myopes. And so, and so if we think about, we'll use myopic maculopathy as an example. And if, if it's over six diopters of myopia and, and you're saying a one in four risk, um, then, then the next question is, okay, well, if I can intervene and we'll use my site as an example, let's say I can intervene at age eight, the patient has, uh, let's say less than three fourths adopter of astigmatism and they fit right in the kind of groove for the sweet spot of, of my site. Let's say they're a minus one. Mm -hmm. Let's say parents are both above a minus six. Yeah. Um, we know that, you know, that obviously they're already myopic. If we can, let's say that the parents are both a minus six, let's say minus seven, just to, for the sake of it, <laughs> then we've got, we've got six diopters to save them and spare them, right? So if we yeah. can cut it down, you said 40% risk, but I want to talk about myopia progression. So let's say that they would have progressed to a minus seven, like their parents would have, right? Um, and we start them at age eight at a, at a one diopter myope, and we can slow them down by 59%. Right in both in, in terms of, of, of refractive error and was yeah. it fifty three percent in terms of axial length is that very right? close fifty two fifty two percent okay impressive. so um, so in any case if if we can do that then um, then we basically keep them right around a minus uh, four maybe four, a minus three seventy five yeah yeah now how much benefit do they get from from trying to reduce their myopic maculopathy that's where the forty percent comes in. Yeah, for every diopter, actually, you save 40%. Okay. So it's a per diopter type of thing. Hmm. Uh, the, the tricky so it would be 40% of the 25%. And yes. then you, so yeah. you go down to a minus five, and then you get 40% of that new percent, right? Down to a minus Correct. four. Correct. It's okay. also very um, layered in that, you know, if you look at all the data from all the clinical trials aggregated together, like Mark Bullimore has done this work, you basically have a seven-year period where you're mostly saving just a little bit of over a diopter. So while we can project that the child may end up to where their parents were, that 59% slowing is usually in the first three years if you look at our data. But as the child gets older, 
they're going to naturally slow down in their progression anyways. Yeah. Not to say we'll take them off the treatments of my site, um, but you kind of get some diminishing returns just because they're slowing down naturally. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Drs. Michelle Andrew, Justin Kwan, and Richard Ruth. And we talked about myopia control in general, but also the MySight lens and the studies, the three-year clinical data on those studies related to the FDA approval for the MySight lens. So a really fun conversation for me. Please enjoy it. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. So uh, I guess, you know, what I've, I've been um, excited to talk about for a long time is my site, but, but I'd like to kind of take it back and think through and, and kind of talk through just myopia control in general. And so Justin, when you think about um, the importance of myopia control, where do you start? What do you, um, what do you, what's compelling to you that says, look, this, this is why I want to do it. What's your why behind myopia control? Yeah, so personally, I'm a minus 10. I've worn corneal gas perm lenses since seventh grade, and my eyeball is way past the danger zone of 26 millimeters. It's actually 28 and a half. But even for an optometrist that isn't a high myope, I think it's just the ability to make a substantial reduction in that likelihood of myopic maculopathy and retinal detachments. Kind of thinking about, my gosh, there's a 25% chance we'll lose our 2015 vision in one or potentially both eyes at like an age, whether you're in your late 40s or early 50s, kind of putting ourselves in the patient's shoes. I don't think any of us would want to wish that on anybody. Um, and if we have the chance, the opportunity to intervene and dial that risk downwards, um, I think if you look at other health conditions like hypertension or even traditional you know, age-related macular degeneration, we can do far better than just reducing risk by 25%. We can actually notch it down by 40%. Right. So that's kind of my why or what well, I see so at most of Yeah. Yeah, and I so sorry to cut you off. I, I so I'm so I am I am a believer in in uh, myopic management. I, I we've been doing it in our practice for a long time. Probably the first time I ever did a, a lecture on myopia management was 2014. Nice. So I I, um, I I wrote about it. And what's crazy is that um, you know the evidence continues to build, right? It continues yeah. to grow. Um, but what I um, what I what I wonder is what I always think about is if you see that big grid in your mind, the big grid of, you know, 128 times more likely to have yeah, this right. condition, right? Yeah. The, the, um, initially, and, and it's been hard to sift through the, the data, but, um, what's the original risk? So like, if you're an emetrope on those things, do you, do you have that information right off the top of your head? Like if I asked you like, what's the, like if you're an emetrope or let's say a two doctor myope, what's the risk of myopic maculopathy? Like the, the percentage of those patients that will have myopic maculopathy yeah, compared to the yeah, minus yeah, yeah. eight. What's um, the likelihood, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So I'll first start with the minus six and higher because that's a one in four chance of getting yep. myopic maculopathy. Now back to your minus twos and threes or even an emetrope. I agree. That's going to be somewhere in the one to 5% range. Okay. So 
somebody on Odie's on Facebook said this too, like, why would I reduce it by 40% if it's just going from 1% down to 0.6%, right? right? right. Um, but we know that there's no safe level of myopia. Like, odds ratios are tricky. They're hard to, like, put mm. into real life. And so I think, yeah, uh, to answer your question, it's somewhere in that 1% to 5% for the lower myopes and then 25% or more for the higher myopes. And so, and so if we think about, we'll use myopic maculopathy as an example. And if, if it's over six diopters of myopia and, and you're saying a one in four risk, um, then, then the next question is, okay, well, if I can intervene and we'll use my site as an example, let's say I can intervene at age eight, the patient has, uh, let's say less than three fourths of doctor of astigmatism and they fit right in the kind of groove for the sweet spot of, of my site. Let's say they're a minus one. Mm-hmm. Let's say parents are both above a minus six. Yeah. Um, we know that, you know, that obviously they're already myopic. If we can, let's say that the parents are both a minus six, let's say minus seven, just to, for the sake of it, <laughs> then we've got, we've got six diopters to save them and spare them. Right. So if we yeah. can cut it down, you said 40% risk, but I want to talk about myopia progression. So let's say that they would have progressed to a minus seven, like their parents would have. Right. Um, and we start them at age eight at a, at a one diopter myope and we can slow them down by 59% right? In, both, in, in terms of, of, of refractive error. And what yeah. is it? 53% in terms of axial length? Is that Very right? close. 52. You, 52%. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in any case, if, if we can do that, then, um, then we basically keep them right around a minus uh, four, maybe four, a minus 375. Yeah. yeah. Now, how much benefit do they get from, from trying to reduce their myopic maculopathy? That's where the 40% comes in? Yeah, for every diopter, actually, you save 40%. Okay. So it's a per diopter type of thing. Hmm. Uh, the, the tricky so it would be 40% of is... the 25%. And yes. then you, so yeah. you go down to a minus five, and then you get 40% of that new percent, right? Down to a minus Correct. four. Correct. It's okay. also very um, layered in that, you know, if you look at all the data from all the clinical trials aggregated together, like Mark Bullimore has done this work, you basically have a seven-year period where you're mostly saving just a little bit of over a diopter. So while we can project that the child may end up to where their parents were, that 59% slowing is usually in the first three years if you look at our data. But as the child gets older, they're going to naturally slow down in their progression anyways. Yeah. Not to say we'll take them off the treatments of my site, um, but you kind of get some diminishing returns just because they're slowing down naturally. Um, so it's hard to say whether they'll get a full two diopter savings. Most of the science is saying you're just getting a little over a diopter of savings with any intervention hmm. over a seven year period. So, and that would be in the case would be obviously that you want to select those patients as early as possible. But, yeah. um, but if, you know, if you're getting to a patient at eight and seven that are already becoming myopic, you know, so you're saying they start at seven, you've got till 14, you're going to save them a diopter. Yeah. Um, but then you also have the potential. The question is, when do they stop growing? When do they, and, and, and with the type of work we're doing, right, yeah. I'm telling patients now that, you know, you may not start until you may stop until you're in college. Exactly. Yeah. So you might yeah. have another seven year period beyond that. Yeah. We really look at the comment data where they, they did in a prospective fashion, track all these kids and find out when they stabilize in their myopia. I think it was about age 16 uh, for their refractive error and age 15 for their axial length hmm. or vice versa. But the key thing there was that 90% of them stabilized by age 21. So 10% of 
have not stabilized, right? Yep. As they go into college, grad school, and so on that we see in our young adult population. When was that? St- so I, I've read the comment study, but I can't remember when it was done. When was it completed? Do you recall? Was it 2012? Oh, gosh. I don't have that at the tip of my tongue. I want to say like that analysis or that paper might have been 2013. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, like so, so it was probably completed eight, nine years ago, right? The study was probably looking at data from eight or nine years ago. What's yeah, interesting is more. that, yeah. And what's interesting about that is, I mean, even take out COVID from the equation, right? And what people uh-huh. are doing. I thought, I think I saw a study this morning that talked about how, you know, just surveyed people were using more of their devices. But, yeah. um, but exclude COVID, just that period of, of, let's say, seven to nine years difference, the amount of near work that's, that's going on now mm-hmm. versus when that study was done, it's pretty, yeah. you know, it's probably even a bigger issue, right? Where, yeah. where it might be the case that, you know, instead of the 90% stabilizing by 21, it might be the case that it's, you know, 80% or, exactly. you know. Yeah, I think that's, that's very valid. It's a hard thing to study. I mean... As we look at the, you know, peer-reviewed literature, the near work aspect of it is kind of both ways. It's not very strong effect size. So it's actually like they have these devices you can clip to their glasses. Like if they hold things closer than 27 or even 20 centimeters, that has a small effect in increasing their myopia. There was that one study about the data use. Like, I don't know if they were streaming videos, so they're like Mm. higher data use in the myopes uh, in the pediatric population. Um, but really, it's the substitution of the outdoor time, we think, for is, is less outdoor to- time is a higher, a stronger effect size, uh, doing more, more good in, in the way that we can intervene. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So, um, and then the, is your read on that? Because that sort of kind of flies in the face a little bit yeah. of this, this underlying reason for outdoor time being it? Is it, if it's not the near work per se, and it's more outdoor time, does that signal that there's something in, in terms of UV light or dopamine release that, exactly. that would, that would call, or, or pupil constriction? But mm-hmm. then if it were pupil constriction, that would fly in the face of why atropine might work, right? Right. So, so yeah. what's your take on it? Yeah. So from what I've read, it is the dopamine story um, with, you know, outside being anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 lux. And then inside, you're like 200. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that orders of magnitude difference does trigger dopamine release. And especially doing emetropization, that tells the retina um, with the bright light is a stop signal for eye growth. And, and so the dopamine release is at the uh, outer retinal levels. Like they have shown that activity in the presence of bright light. And so as it regulates the way the eye grows long, um, that two hours a day or more from the clear data essentially cancels out the parental risk. So if you have those two myopic parents, but yet you send the kid outdoors for two hours a day, you pretty much negate the parental component, which is the strong argument for the uh, environmental versus genetic, right? Yeah. So then, so we'll get into my site as well, um, but we can't deny the fact that there's been big studies on atropine and obviously the strongest, um, uh, the strongest uh, result or response from atropine, even though we saw a rebound effect from Adam one, right? Once you, or actually when you looked at that data later on in those kids that once they stopped it, they had this really rapid progression um, of their myopia, where I think the only difference at the end was something like a three-fourths of a diopter or a diopter yeah, difference, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But, um, but I think the, uh, the interesting part about that is what's your take then on why atropine works? Is it because you're just allowing more light into the eye at that time and why the greater uh, amounts would work? Or yeah. is there some other mechanism that may be at play? I don't think it's fully understood at this point, except that I know atropine has some effect uh, retinal level, even though it's a topically administered drug. Right. Uh, but I think it does have some, either at the corridor level or the retinal level, I'm not too sure. Um, but we know it's not an accommodation thing. And to your point, it might be a light level thing, but um, I, I haven't read anything that really nails it down. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that always, I think that kind of leads me to struggle and it makes me struggle with parents, right? So when, cause we've used it in our practice and we found different places that we can get it compounded relatively yeah. inexpensively. But, um, you know, if I think about my kids, um, I want to know, I mean, there's a lot of things we don't understand the mechanism of action completely with, right? We sort of think we understand, but in this case, we're sort of, we're really grasping at straws at this mechanism of action. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you start to see the lower dose of atropine um, kind of still having an impact without impacting accommodation in a significant way, mm. um, without impacting pupil size in a significant way. Right. And so, um, so there's something else at play. And then that, that does just make me generally uh, a little more hesitant, which is yeah. why I think contact lens options are great options. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so obviously the... Uh, Will you go into um, the the mechanism at play with the MySight lens and why that works and why it's unique to other just using a, a multifocal lens, for yeah. example, with a center yeah. distance? Absolutely. And so when we licensed the technology back in 2009 from New Zealand, it was an optical design meant to serve this very purpose of slowing myopia progression in children. And whereas presbyopic multifocals, they have an entirely different optical design meant for adults who have that reduced ability to accommodate. Uh, but the MySight One Day is basically built on that ProClear One Day material, uh, Omaphilcon A, and it's a dual focus lens. So we actually don't call it a multifocal. Well, it's clearly a du dual focus lens. Yeah, no, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's smart because from a standpoint of a parent's perspective, if they think it's just a bifocal, their understanding is my kid needs to be able to see better up close because that's what a bifocal means to them. A dual focus lens does mean something different. And for the parent, that's really important. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Just like if you were going to use a low ad power on somebody who's going to be doing this kind of work all day long, you wouldn't probably call it a progressive lens or a bifocal. You'd probably call it an anti-fatigue lens because mm -hmm. that's what you're tending to do. That's what your intent is. Yeah. But we just term them something different. And I think it's important because it helps people understand. It helps them wrap their mind around, around what we're doing. No, oh, yeah. And, and this lens is that, you know, that where that center zone is, is solid distance vision. And so you don't have any ad power increase, right? It's not gradual. It's literally solid in that, in that central area. And then you have that quick ramp up to that two diopters of ad. And, and that ring is what moves light in front of the retina, and that's the treatment zone is what we call it, to create that myopic defocus. And we know that, you know, that's, that's what slows down the myopia progression amongst, um, you know, other theories right now is to slow that axial length elongation. So kind of recap, you have that center distance, then that quick ramp up to two diopters of uh, add, and then back to the vision correction zone, <laughs> and then back to one more treatment zone. And with that same two diopters of defocus. So how far out does that go? So what's the entire optical zones 
in total? I think it depends on how, how much minus power there is, but roughly eight millimeters. Yeah. Okay. And the reason to give them more distance in a, in a secondary circumferen uh, circumferential ring yep. is why? why? Why do you think that's important? I think for larger pupil sizes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and so then how, when you think about my site, do you think, uh, I mean, with kids, you should be having a pupil size that is, is plenty big enough, yeah. right? Um, where like you said, for adults, we may want a different, you know, it may be a, a bigger impact where your near zone might be smaller, Correct. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, um, okay, that, that's interesting. And then, and so um, when you think about uh, those, those circumferential rings, what has been your experience in terms of, um, you know, patient's perception of blur? Right. So before right. I had my site, yeah. we would use, I mean, again, we would use off label. We would sure. use like a ProClear multifocal center distance or a Biofinity multifocal center distance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so my perception is in general with those lenses, um, because there are some smaller studies that say those designs can be of benefit. Uh, mm -hmm. the, with those lenses, I think kids tend to be more forgiving, right, yeah. with, with that blur. Um, is so. this, is, is the MySight better? I mean, are, are kids even more forgiving with that design than, than others? Or what do you think? Great question. It's always like head to head, you know, how do they respond <laughs> to spherical aberration or right. these ghosting halo things, right? So I can tell you from the three-year clinical trial that between 60 and 70% did not notice any ghosting. And then another 20% was like, yeah, I saw it, but it's not annoying. Right. thinking about how we like pull this out of kids or almost like prompting them to look for it is always a little, there's a bit of bias there. Um, but the kids saw better than 2020 at every visit, um, often 2016 minus two. Uh, hearing from doctors that are actively prescribing my site one day, even as they're probing for that visual like weirdness, um, seems to be we're hearing that like, magically goes away by day four, day yeah. five. And I think you said it, Chris, like we're dealing with children who are likely wearing glasses that are under minus because they've had a shift, right? So they're seeing 2030 in their glasses. So an aberrated 2020 is so much clearer than their current glasses. Right. No, that's a great point. I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. I, I think, so my, my perspective has always been that kids are more forgiving than, than adults in this because <laughs> Um, and so, uh, and then I also think it's important when, when I'm communicating with a patient about what they're going to experience is, um, I tend not to probe too much. Like yeah. I, I, um, but I also upfront say this can happen this and usually your brain adjusts to it. Right. And if it happens, it usually doesn't really impact the, the sharpness or the, yeah. um, the level of acuity you can yeah. have. Right. It doesn't get in the way. It's just, yeah. like, oh, I saw it. Yeah. 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 So they know it's, it's there, but then, then I'm not, you know, on the follow-ups, I'm not trying to say, are you sure you didn't have any, are you sure you didn't have any blur? Yeah. Are you sure you don't have any halos? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's important. Um, For sure. So then, um, okay. So, so the next phase of, of the study, I know I'm jumping a little bit over, but, but now I think what's interesting is you're looking toward the rebound. Yeah. So you've got three years of my site FDA data. Um, which is super powerful because actually before I get into that, tell me about just the power of that study in general. When you have to go through an FDA approval process, the power of the study has to be pretty substantial, I would suspect. And so, you know, yeah. tell me about the ends, tell me about the, the exclusionary, uh, you know, those that can be in, that can't be in. In my opinion, just to give you my, my opinion, 
um, when I talk to the patients about it, I'll, I'll make them aware if they're outside of those data, right? If they, yep. maybe they're 13 years old or maybe now again, this is off label, mm-hmm. maybe they're seven years old, whatever, but I'll, I'll tell them what, what we can do from an FDA standpoint, what we can do from an FDA standpoint. And then Chris Wolf will say that's not on label, but we can use these other things, right? But let's talk about the label uh, and what the FDA data showed us. Yeah. So the three-year clinical trial enrolled children, as you mentioned, 8 to 12 years old, um, minus 75 to minus 4, with less than three-quarters diopters of cylinder. These 150 kids were from four clinical sites. I think that's important. Uh, Singapore, um, Waterloo in Canada, and uh, the UK, Aston University, and uh, Portugal. So even though that's a very diverse international population, the funny thing is they actually look like, in, in other analyses and other scientific presentations, these kids look like 9,000 Irish kids. <laughs> they actually look like um, kids out of Ohio. The oh, wait, way wait, that wait. their refractive error distribution is and the way that the control group is, is actually very similar despite the differences in ethnic diversity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so um, I'm going to, I'm going to have you walk me back there again. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the genetics would be the only thing that's different in theory. In theory. Yeah. yeah but we didn't even see that play out in subsequent analyses. Now these are done that? like, you know, consulting other people outside of Cooper vision. Right. And right. as our folks look at other historical controls, if you want to call them, uh, they're like, wow, we were surprised to find such similarities. You would think the Singapore kids would skew this dramatically. Right. Right. Um, but okay. Yeah. Throughout the three years, you know, what the FDA needs is that classic randomized controlled trial where there's double masking the parents, the kids, the investigators hmm. had no idea whether they were getting the treatment of my site or whether they were getting the control of Proclear one day. And year by year, we saw those uh, solid differences, none of that overlapping, right? Um, truly a 0.1 millimeter difference in axial length or more between groups. And really at the end of the three years, you get a 0.75 dioptric difference between the two groups. And at first glance, that's like, that's not a lot after three years, but um, remember every diopter matters. So that really gets us there. And um, yeah, we, it, you know, sometimes the slope of those lines or um, we can see those diminishing returns between year two and three, but man, with this age group, we saw that maintained. So that was yeah. really exciting to see. So then, um, so then the, um, the, the forward-looking next cycle is probably the question that, that I've really, that many people are probably asking is, okay, after the three years, and, and you may not stop it, do we need to carry on, you know, beyond 21? Do we need to taper patients? Do we need, yeah. So what, what is this next set of years worth of data going to look at and, and kind of how can we tease out some, some clinical insights yeah. from it? Yeah, for sure. So after the first three years, we enter what we call phase two, where every kid now can wear MySight one day because it was unethical to keep the ProClear one days, uh, depriving them of treatments that we know works well. So in the phase two, all the kids are progressing at the same rate. Uh, So that's, once again, speaks to the efficacy. And then what you're talking about is the rebound. So between year six and seven, which is currently ongoing right now, we take every kid out of my site and put them back into ProClear one day and to see if there's a rebound. Now these kids are going to be between the age of 14 and 18 during this uh, rebound uh, or 
the, the last year of the seven right. year study, so to speak. Um, so yeah, we, we think that there's going to be maintained effects, meaning that they're not just going to drop off a cliff and <laughs> progress the diopter of myopia in this next year for, you know, a couple of reasons, right? They're once again older now, so they're naturally slowing down. Um, but that brings us to that, how do we apply this to everyday private practice, right? Because let's just say a parent is on board, it's a multi-year kind of commitment and they're, they're paying their global fee annually. But let's just say circumstances or personal preference, the parent decides to stop, right? right? Like we're going to take our kid out of my sight. They're still like 13 years old and it's like, okay, it's your decision, right? So I think that the, the point there is to say, it's your decision. Let's take the kid out of my sight then, but let's see you back in six months. Right. If there's been no change, we all made the right decision. If there's been a change, no problem. Let's start back up in the myopia management treatment. Right. Right. So, so I mean, and that's, that leads to the next question is I think, you know, I, and I make this mistake myself is, you know, we look at rates of progression as a reason to have a conversation in the first place. So take, take this example. I see a patient at six years old. I know we're outside of the MySight trial. I'm just talking myopia management in general. I see a patient at six years old, they're minus 50. I sort of have this little conversation with parents, but they're a minus 50. And if they stayed that way their whole life, they're going to be served well. Maybe the parents aren't that nearsighted, all that kind of stuff. I see them back the next year and they're minus 50 or they're minus 75. Let's say they they progress minus 75. Great. Um, You know, okay. uh, We could, we could take the next step and let's even put them to, 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 so that we can have a conversation about the trial. Let's say they were, we started at minus minus 50 at age seven. We see them at age eight. They're minus 75. No sill, they're inside the data pool of what we can apply from an FDA standpoint. Is it malpractice for me to not advocate for this? I would say it's not standard of care yet. That's obviously Cooper Vision's commitment is to make myopia management standard of care. In any health field, it typically takes 17 years um, before something mm. becomes standard of care. But I would say this conversation, you know, you have doctors that say I've been practicing myopia management for 20 years. Right. So I think the time is now, right? But to your point about how do we use the clinical trial data for your specific case of a minus a half that just by sheer luck stays very stable at right. minus a half, right? right? So in the clinical trial, you grab the control group of ProClear One Days, only 4% of those kids stayed stable by sheer luck. And what does so stable the flip mean? Side, stable 96% actually means... are progressing until and, proven otherwise. And, and so in, in stable, did that mean like no doctorate change, no axial length change, or does it mean an acceptable amount of ref- like what's correct in yeah, that analysis, you... the 4% of the ProClear one day kids had a quarter or less change over three years. In total, not in total, year, near, not year, 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 in total. Yeah. yeah. So the assumption then is these kids are going to change um, until proven otherwise. The time, they're going to progress. Yeah. See, I think that's really helpful because the conversations that, and, I, and again, um, we've been doing this for a long time, but the conversations I get stuck in with my, my patients and, and their parents is we can't really know how much, you're, how much nearsightedness you're going to get. And that's a downside, right? I can't it really is. know how yeah. much I'm saving you. Mm-hmm. But if I can approach it with saying, look, you have a 96% chance of changing, right, yeah. of having a significant change over the next three years, um, that's more empowering. That's a, actually a better conversation. 
It is because we're stuck in a place, like you said, you're, you're planting the seed, you're cultivating it with follow-up conversations, whether it's the next year or whether it's six months. But by that time, we may have missed the window or we were fine because they didn't progress. But you're right. It, it, I always take it as they're a progressor until proven otherwise. Yeah. I think that's a great perspective to have. And again, that's a number I hadn't, I, I didn't know. What, what was the study that showed? That was the, that was the pro That was just our three-year clinical yeah. trial. Yeah. No, I think, I think in, that would be something, and I'm going to bring Michelle in here as well, um, because I think, Michelle, I don't recall in all the Brilliant Futures training, um, I don't recall that. And I think that would be a really powerful point to point out in terms of, maybe, maybe I'm just dense and I, I missed it. Probably yeah. that's the case. But um, I think that's a highlight because it, it helps us communicate with parents. And instead of getting lost in the idea of, you know, for me, getting lost in the nuance or the idea of, well, you're a minus five, you're a minus two, you know, how, what are they doing here? What are they doing there? It's just, you know, it's great. The assumption is they're going to, and, and that's a vast, that's not even a, a large assumption. That's a very small assumption that they're going to progress, right? Based on that number, based on that data. So Michelle, then, um, you know, um, I'd like to bring you in on the conversation because you've really, uh, and I know Justin is expert at this as well, but what I see from you, Michelle, is how do you make this important to the, the practicing clinician that isn't already doing it, uh, hasn't wrapped their mind around myopia control and, and thinks, well, not that big of a deal, right? What's, what's been your area of, you say, these are, the, these are the really important things that I think speak well to patients and speak well to doctors. Yeah, Chris, it's a, it's a great point because as, as you've talked about and Justin has talked about, both of you have been involved in myopia management for quite some time. And we would think as a profession that there would be um, a lot more energy, a lot more consistent energy on a topic of myopia management across the profession, and yet we don't see it. We see um, small groups of very passionate practitioners yeah. around myopia management, and then we see others um, struggling more to, to find their place. Um, and as Justin already mentioned, it's a priority for us at Cooper Vision to, to evolve standard of care, that, that myopia management is the approach to children with myopic refractive error first. And, and let's look at myopia management as the standard of care for these children and not just simply refractive correction. Um, so for us, a big piece of it was really understanding the landscape. It was understanding how do eye care practitioners look at myopia management? What are the reasons? What do they understand about it? Um, how effective are they at communicating with parents? Um, what gets in their way of being more effective? And then the same thing with parents. What do they understand about myopia? Do they know the word myopia? Um, how do they feel about their children in contact lenses? Um, because even if they do understand myopia and myopic progression, will they be comfortable putting their children in contact lenses. And so we spent quite a bit of time looking at really those two, two groups, is what does the parent think and know and feel about myopia and contact lenses, and what do eye care professionals think and know and feel about myopia and contact lenses in a young patient population? So then, well, what, what was your sense then? First, let's start with the, the doctors. What is their, what's their comfort range in general when you, when you survey a, a group of general practice or primary care optometrists, um, which is what I would consider myself, what's the age that they're starting to feel comfortable in prescribing contacts and why is that age magical in your opinion? 
Yeah. So when you when you are in a group and and you ask doctors, you know, where what is your comfort level with this? Um, they talk about teenage years. You know, mm-hmm. they about 11, 12, 13. And, and, and sometimes they don't really know. They talk about, well, it depends based on the individual and we have to really look at the motivation of the child and all of those things. But statistically, only 49% of doctors that we surveyed would pr- recommend a soft lens in children ages 8 to 10. Now, the number goes up to 87% of ECPs when the children are ages 11 to 15. Um, but, but it's too late, or it's almost too late. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So in, in thinking about what Justin described about the natural progression of myopia and the fact that our opportunity to make a significant difference is in the younger years, and the eye will naturally slow down in its progression as a children ages, um, we all need to um, learn to get more comfortable around prescribing contact lenses in younger children so that we can help parents get more comfortable with soft contact lenses as a treatment option. Because it well, really yeah. does rely on both. Well, because I would suspect that the parents, um, you know, the parents' response to those same types of questions would be uh, predicated on their historical uh, encounters with their eye doctors. So I would imagine that that, that would mirror their, their perspective on when their kids are ready would be pretty close to what eye doctor's perspective. Is that correct or no? You know, it's, it's really interesting because we did quite a bit of, of research, as you, as you probably would expect in bringing this product to market. Some of it was survey research. Some of it was focus group research. And what we learned is that as a profession, we did a really nice job of educating our myopic patients about don't worry about your myopia. Mm. We, mm. we, as a profession, um, seem to have done a nice job with helping people understand that, well, if you can see 2020, then your risk is low. Mm. And it's those high myopes who are at the risk of retinal detachment and other things. And so unless you have a high prescription, um, as long as you keep coming in for your, your eye exams, there's some sort of protectiveness. Mm. Of that. In fact, some, some parents said to us in focus group, well, that's what I do. I keep bringing my child in for eye exams because that's what you do, right? Um, not realizing that certainly there was more to it because historically we didn't realize that there was more to it. Right. So it is both a shift in mindset for um, first and foremost, it's for us as eye care professionals to recognize that there is um, a new myopic trend that we we are seeing things differently now. That the data and research and science tells us that that the incidence is higher, that the level of myopia is increasing, and this understanding of the impact of environment beyond just genetics and now having options to do something about it really changes the conversation. And so, where the where the parents' experience does come into play certainly is if they have experience with myopia and the, the impact that that can have on quality of life. Many parents would say, I don't want my children to, to go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. That's a very real motivator. Um, many parents who are familiar with wearing soft contact lenses and the ease of a daily disposable soft contact lens are much more likely to, to say, yes, I, I think my children can do that because I'm familiar with that. Um, but if, if the parent is, is 
um, has not been educated about the updates in our understanding around myopia, um, they may be, in some cases, you might need to spend as much time with them um, as you might with somebody with lower amounts of myopia or no myopia, just because, because of how we've educated, educated them throughout the years. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think the, the shift in the profession has to be toward, if, if, we, if we believe that this is, is something that's important for the longevity of our patient's vision, I mean, especially when you start thinking about uh, you know, numbers like one in, tw- one in four, uh, over the over or minus six are going to have some form of myop, myopic maculopathy, and and then Justin, maybe you know this right off the top of your head, but what's the um, what's the percentage of of the United States population that is over a minus six? Do we know that data? I don't have that actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's okay, I, but but it's not insignificant. I mean, it's quite oh. significant. Yeah. Um, but but Michelle, one of the things that was telling for me, and, and maybe Richard, you can comment on this also, is that. What was motivating in the data that you looked at, I think that you and I had talked about this some other time, Michelle, but the data that you looked at, actually what was more motivating was not the stick of myopia for the parents. What was more motivating? It was, it was basically their freedoms, their children's freedoms to have other corrective options in the future? What was it? It, it was. So when we, the, the research that we have in, in speaking to parents is if we use the data that we've been talking about, about the incidence of retinal detachment and the incidence of macular disease and glaucoma and everything, they actually felt that that, that was a fear tactic, hmm. that it was something, these were diseases that happened decades in the future, and they weren't, they, they struggled to make that relevant to their child's life today. Hmm. And so not only did they not want to move forward with the myopia management program, but it really questioned the credibility and the trust of the eye care professional in total. Hmm. We thought there was a motivation there that was um, some sort of inappropriate motivation. Right. Scare tactic. Right. Exactly. Don't right. scare right. me into, into something because they just couldn't perceive it down the road. When we talk to parents about lifestyle, when we talk about giving your child opportunities and keeping their options as wide open as possible and not limiting them because of a a vision impairment or because of high prescription, they were very interested in that. So what I think is a really important takeaway is that while, while eye care professionals might be motivated by the numbers and might be motivated to say, wow, I need to be thinking about this differently. I, I wasn't connecting the dots in exactly that way. I need to lean into this more and, and, and more urgently. If we use the same data points that motivate us as eye care professionals and we try to apply them mm. to the parent, the parent will not respond in the same way. And so that's, it's, it's a very important piece because I think in some um, early in early days, you know, we would, we would assume that what motivates us motivates the parent as well. And we learned that that's really just not the case. Yeah. Well, it's interesting for me as a clinician is because I think, you know, I geek out on the data, right. And I, it gets me excited and, and it motivates me and I get excited about talking about it, obviously. Right. I, I mean, I, I could probably have a couple more hours um, to talk about this with you, but the, um, the, so I can naturally fall into, you know, the studies show us this, they show us that, this is how much we can prevent this and that. And, um, 
what's what what I really should be doing is focusing on how I'm going to to communicate you know the the lifestyle things that that they will be able to do. So Richard or Michelle, any um, any specific types of lifestyle examples that was useful for the parents to communicate the fact that they'll be able to have more options in the future? Like as the clinician, what specific types of examples should I use to be able to communicate that fluidity of, of their future options for refractive care? Yeah, it's um, again, a very good question uh, and not an easy question to ask, but certainly, from my perspective, when, when working with parents and when recommending myopia management on my side, in this case, to parents, um, my focus tends to be, again, going back to what Michelle was saying, not, not centered on scare, tactor, scare tactics in terms of risk factors for myopic maculopathy or glaucoma, or et cetera, um, but more focus on the child's quality of life. Uh, so what I will always encourage doctors to do is to, is to start at that point, start at the education, start at illustrating to the parent what the child is currently experiencing now as a minus one myope at the age of eight or nine or whatever it is, but also to, to demonstrate what progression can look like. Um, so, and you can demonstrate that with positive lenses, very simply just hold two plus ones over the parent's eyes and say, this is where they're at now. The fact that you're myopic, maybe your husband's myopic as well. Um, uh, it just increases the likelihood that this is going to pro progress. It may progress to a certain level. And, and to give them a very clear understanding of what progression looks like. What does it look like if my child reaches a, a minus three or a minus four or a minus six or a minus seven? And again, demonstrating with, with, with trial lenses or, or with images. Um, that's how I feel is the, is the most effective way to, to capture a parent and really sort of give them the understanding of what their child is experiencing. You know, myself and Justin were talking about this the other day. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, this, this should be offered or our myopia management should be offered to every child that is developing myopia and that is likely to progress. Because if, if, if our children and Justin and I both have young, young children, if they have something the matter with them, no matter what it is, we will always, as parents, do our very best to treat it or, or to slow the progression of it or, or to try and improve it in any way we can so that it will improve their quality of life. So that's really what I focus on is, is try to get doctors to firstly understand the importance of offering this to every parent of a child that is, is developing myopia. I think that's important. I think every parent deserves to know about myopia management, to know about my site as a potential option, and to be able to make a decision as to whether or not it's suitable for their child, um, or if it's a treatment that, that they think is worth considering. So that's what I urge all doctors to do now, is, especially now with our approval, to, to offer this to parents. You know, I come from the ortho-K world, and I know that it's, it's just completely different. Ortho K, it's, it's very time consuming, um, chair time, et cetera. And ultimately parents quite often have never heard of Ortho K as, as a oh, potential yeah. treatment or, you know, a way of managing myopia. So it's, it's a, I think it's a much more difficult sell or it's more difficult mm. to gain commitment from, from the parents. 
Um, but I think now that we have a soft daily disposable lens that's FDA approved and, and the results speak for itself, um, this has to be something that, that all doctors begin to offer, whether it's myopia management or my site, but they, they offer to parents, they discuss it with parents. Then secondly, the, the education and illustrating what it looks like so that the parents can understand it. And I just go back to an example that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was working for Paragon Vision and I went to give a talk to a group of soccer coaches about CRT as a, as a, you know, a, a possible treatment to children's myopia. Now, we couldn't speak about myopia control or anything sure. like that. It was more for a lifestyle benefit. And I, I stood in front of 80 soccer coaches, half of whom were wearing glasses themselves. And I wasn't sure where to kind of pitch my talk at. So I decided, look, I'll just start with the question. Hands up if you know what myopia is. And not one hand went up in the room. You know, so I've got 30 or 40 people in there wearing glasses. Um, a high likelihood that a lot of those are myopic and they don't know what it is. And they're adults, sorry. They're, they're not children, they're adults. So it's, it's that education which I think is critical and starting there and, and, and showing the parent what it is, what their child is experiencing, what it could look like in the future. Uh, and then ultimately... I think doctors need to be confident when they're discussing it. Um, the, the proof is there. The results are there. Um, parents want to hear about these things. They want to hear what treatments are on offer. They deserve to hear about them. Uh, so it, it's confidence in, in prescribing and recommending my site or myopia management or whatever it is. Yeah, I, think, I think confidence is, is absolutely, no matter what treatment options you're going to employ for any condition, Right. Um, I've talked about on the podcast before confidence, and I think there are ways to project confidence with also being humble and being um, about why you're, you're recommending different things or why your diagnosis is what it is. Um, and uh, as opposed to being cocky, for example, but the um, but I think confidence is super important, especially when you delve into some of these other treatments that people aren't hearing about a lot. Right. I think I think when you when when I look at practices that can really implement and integrate new technologies and things that are sort of a premium, things that may not be, quote unquote, covered um, or uh, or something that they can get at. They've seen advertised on television here or there or, or other other locations. You have to really believe in what you're doing is the best thing. And also that you have the confidence to do, I think a couple things first to be able to integrate it into the practice, right? So there's, there's sort of this practice philosophy that has to exist. And then second, um, you have to be able to, uh, have, I think having, um, a, maybe a second or third or, you know, an understanding of if this doesn't work, I have this option, or if somebody fails here, I have that. I mean, one of the things, so there's two things that, that I'd, I'd like to point out and get your response to. First, you know, if we can keep patients, in theory, if we can keep them just from a functional, practical standpoint for their entire life, if they can be, a, uh, let's say, a less than three doctors of, of myopia, right? They're probably always, especially with the work we do now, always going to be able to function within a world that we're living in, right? Maybe it's two and a half doctors, maybe it's two doctors, but you know, if we can keep patients in that perspective, then they'll always have the option to feel like this space is comfortable for them with glasses, without glasses. And, and that means that they don't always have to put something on to be there. Um, so I think that's one thing that, that as, as you're talking about this, Michelle, in terms of, uh, and, and Richard, in terms of 
um, showing patient parents what it's like to have this type of vision. Once you get into like a minus five, minus six, this space isn't normal anymore, right? You've got to be very close. I think the other thing is that um, when you think about integrating this technology into a practice, um, there, uh, there's probably a barrier for some people, right? There's a barrier for some people to say this is different. And, um, and I applaud you for trying to get through that barrier with a lot of docs. But I also think that this, like you said, Richard, I think this is a technology that matches, it kind of mirrors with the idea of, you know, I don't want to micromanage myopia, right? Like some people might say, I don't want to micromanage myopia. What's, it's, it's so easy for me to write a prescription as it progresses and, and there you go, and there you go. Um, so, but this is more comfortable to a, to what we're used to doing. Mm -hmm. And just as an observation from my practice is, you know, when I think about how young kids can be in, in contact lenses, um, I really don't, I mean, we we do get referrals for kids that have high prescriptions that are really young, right. That are, you know, three, four to three or four years old, five years old. So I'm not afraid of that. Um, the other thing I think about is that when I think about the complication rates for patients that are wearing daily lenses, but we just don't, as a rule in our practice, like, like uh, I know Justin, we were talking about um, Justin Schweitzer earlier, but I heard he did a great job. Um, I can't remember who he was talking with, Allison somebody at, at, on AOA, they were talking about corneal ulcers. Yep. And I thought, yeah, it's great, a great lecture. But in my primary care practice, um, that, who yeah. were on call 24 hours a day, corneal ulcers are just not something we see, but I, I don't think it's because we're so great. I think it's that uh, the proponent, the proportion of our patients that are wearing daily lenses is astronomical. It's like, it's like 60% of our patients. If you can wear a daily lens, we're talking about it with you. And so, um, so can you talk about Mark Bullimore? So if I can be confident, more confident in recommending contact lenses to children, talk about Mark's um, studies on, uh, on, the safety of contact lens wear in children. Yeah, so, you know, looking at the CLAY, the Contact Lens Assessment in Youth Study, which Mark does reference, um, it's really looking at age 8 to 33, I believe it was. So these contact lens wearers were soft lenses daily or monthly or two-week, and it found the, the lowest rate of corneal infiltrative events and the microbial keratitis was actually 8 to 12 years old. <laughs> And potentially there's something where the parents are watching more closely. And then you see that bar graph notch up slightly um, in the 13 to 18. And then the most risky is the 18 to 25 year olds, right? Because off to college, the dorm room, they're already in a groove. They think they're invincible with their soft contact lens wear. So 8 to 12 is actually the safest from a corneal health standpoint. But I wanted to come back a little bit, Chris, because if we think here in the year 2020, <laughs> LASIK has been out for 25 years, and daily disposables are essentially been out 25 years. And I, that's, I guess, me and Richard's demographic of like parents with children that are eligible for myopia management is back to that familiarity or the why, is that educating or connecting to them, that's where the confidence is. Because if you know this established family, you know how to connect them to the point of decision making that they're going to jump on board. And so we, we quote Dr. Barry Iden in that, well, LASIK corrected the symptom of nearsightedness, yeah. but the is still there with the stretched retina. Um, so kind of educating on that level, but just like, man, a minus three LASIK is so much easier than a oh. minus six LASIK. And yeah. really, I think that's another quality of life thing. 
Yeah. yeah, it's the same thing I think about with with CRT. You know, if I if I get a patient in CRT that's a three do, three doctors or less, like slam dunk. Like, yeah, slam dunk. you know, Richard, you talked about about chair time, but I look at those. I'm like, that chair time is almost nothing, right? <laughs> like I like those types of things. Those calculators have gotten so good that I used to really micromanage them and and do all my diagnostic fitting. But gosh, with dual access technology now and and all this other stuff, it's like it. You know, I can order that and, and chair time is, but, but if I get into minus five, minus, you know, 575, and that's like, it's going to take me a while, right? And I'm sure the LASIK surgeons are the same way. It's like, this is going to be, this is going to go perfectly, right? Minus three is beautiful, super easy. Your complication rates are, are small. Yeah. So that's a great point. I think it's, it's one that's, um, that's well taken. Yes, we could do LASIK if you have the thickness of the cornea and, and all the other parameters if you're a minus eight, nine, but it's not going to be as easy and and our our ability to retreat you in the future without having problems is is slim to none right yeah um okay i want to be respectful of your time this was uh this was awesome i, I totally could do another hour or two um <laughs> but thanks richard justin yeah. michelle thank you so much for coming on thanks chris we're thanks, honored <laughs> Thank you.